You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Cordy Walker. I am your host for today. I hope you're having a great master's week, in my opinion, the best week of the year. And today on the podcast, I thought we'd do something a little different. The season is kicking off, uh, except if you're in Minnesota like me, where we just got uh, eight inches of snow. Uh, Anyways, soon enough, we'll all be out practicing. We'll all be out trying to get in our best form possible so we can go play our best golf. And a lot of that time means practicing, right? You're going to hit the range. What are you going to do to get better? And we need to have an understanding when we're going through this process of trying to improve, trying to practice, trying to maybe relearn or reacquire some skills. So we are diving back into the archives. We did a podcast with Matthew Cook, a great golf instructor called Game Like Training Radio, where we did a bunch of good interviews with folks talking about learning. One interview that really stood out and I want to share with you is with Dr. Tim Lee. I like to call him the godfather of motor learning research, uh, talking about this idea of perfect practice makes perfect. I'm sure you've heard that concept, and we're going to talk about why that isn't true in the mindset and the attitude that you should bring towards learning. Really enjoyed this conversation. That's why we're going to listen to it now, and hopefully it gives you some good ideas as we get into the season Anyways, enjoy this conversation. Enjoy the Masters this week. Uh, And we'll be back next week with a really great new episode looking at fitness and some really cool concepts around how tour pros are training and how that applies to you. All right, let's get to it. We're back with Dr. Tim Lee. Today, we're going to talk about something a little different, and that is this concept of perfect practice makes perfect. And uh, we're starting with that quote because that's actually not the reality of, of what happens. Tim, how's it going? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Thanks. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So perfect practice makes perfect, right? Uh, I think it's something that we've all heard. I know that I've heard it, heard it said when, when, you know, you're working on something or you're working with a teacher and they're trying to get you to, to do better reps, right? Or more perfect reps. Right. But that's not the case. Well, I don't think so. At least not based upon the evidence that I've seen in the, in the research literature, both in the motor skills literature and also in general learning literature as well. It's an old concept that comes from back in the days of conditioning research on conditioning in animals that tends to support the idea that errors degrade somehow the learning process. Uh, And I don't think that that's true when you start moving the research into work with humans. So, Tim, what does the research on errorless and errors in practice, can you give us like an, an overview of what the research has been telling us? Well, I I guess you have to look at it from different perspectives. You know, you can say, well, how are errors made or how was the research on errors investigated? So I guess you kind of go back to say, okay, well, what is the type of experimental conditions being investigated that that looks at errors? And and you can go to things like conditions of practice. We've talked before about uh interleaved or random practice versus blocked practice. Uh, and if you looked at block, pra- block practice from the role of errors, now there's a specific example of a practice condition that's designed to minimize or reduce errors as much as possible and as quickly as possible. 
the idea of practicing something over and over and over again, the same skill over and over again. The goal is to try and reduce the errors that are made as quickly as possible. Um, take, for example, a lining up for a four-foot putt or a three-foot putt, if you will. Mm -hmm. You can drop 100 balls down and hit the putt, same putt, over and over and over and over and over again. And I've seen people do that out on the, on the putting green. That's a type of block practice that's designed to repeat the movement over and over again as often as possible with the greatest chance of success each time. And put it another way, it's just a form of errorless practice. That's one example. You know, another example would be the use of physically restricted training aids or guidance devices, as they're more generally called. Again, I was just going to ask about that. I was just going to ask about training aids. <laughs> yeah. What's your, well, what's your view with the training, training aids? Because well, you see a lot, don't you? A lot of golf coaches and I've used I've used them a lot in the past. I, I use them very little now. I tried to use them not so often now, but I guess training aids are designed to reduce the errors as well, aren't they? Well, I think so. At least in part, that's the the rationale. Again, if you think about a training aid, and let's use the example of the putting stroke again, you could use a a training aid that lines up the putter with the hole, and now stroke putt after putt after putt you know, where you're resting the edge of the putter against the edge of the training aid, and odds are you're going to make just about every putt. And the reason is because that uh, the physically restricted nature of the training aid is preventing you from doing anything other than making a perfect putt. So, I, again, here's just another way of, of looking at a method that's designed to help you practice by reducing the variability that normally occurs in the, in the golf swing uh, such that it results in kind of a perfect performance each time, if you will. Here's a question for you then. We've spoken in the past about the challenge point theory and how the you know, you've got obviously a lot of different levels of golfer uh, regarding the skill level. What would be appropriate for the different levels of skill that you see out there regarding the errorless and, and errorful practice? Yeah, I I guess it's um, it's difficult to put a number on, you know, what frequency of, of errors you want to see and what frequency of, of uh, errorless practice you want to see because there's a lot of different things come into it, including the emotions of the individual who's who's practicing. You know, you don't want to be completely uh, discouraging to an individual. On the other hand, you want to challenge the individual enough such that that the errors that they make can be beneficial to the learning process. And from that, I, by that, I mean not learning to make mistakes, but learning from the mistakes that are made. So that if you can create uh, a desirable challenge that is desirable in such a way that it, it leads to errors from which person can make uh, a reasonable assumption from which they can learn, you know, understand why they made the error and understand perhaps how they might avoid making that error in the future, then I think you've set up a, a constructive learning process. Yeah, and that's I guess that's the coach's intuition and, and experience with the player and the relationship they have with the player to know when it may be, all right, you've been in this blocked environment experiencing success after success of perfect stroke. For, if we're going to use the putting example, perfect stroke after perfect stroke, ball going in the hole after ball going in the hole then as a coach, you, you, you should 
maybe have the intuition to say, all right, it's time to make it a little bit more challenging. Exactly. And this comes back to the whole premise of your show, and that's the the notion of game-like practice, because you don't have those conditions out on the golf course. When you go out onto the golf course, you're you don't have a physically restricted aid to help you with your putt, and you don't uh, make blocked type of practice strokes. You know, your, your practice strokes are interspersed with other types of, of strokes, and your putting stroke is is uh, subject to all kinds of errors that we normally make. So, yeah. um, so not practicing under those conditions is kind of counterintuitive to the notion of, of game-like practice. I have a question here. So perfect practice makes perfect. That's where we started with this this phrase. And when we think about the concept of perfect in that sense, I think we probably think about like making a perfect swing or changing a move to be more perfect. Right. And so the the question that I have then is what is what is errors, right? Cuz cuz at least my interpretation of the research that I've read is that er- you know the the learning is actually found in the errors and in the mistakes. So are the mistakes right. like mistakes in technique or mistake in performance? Is it like, and let's go back to the three foot putt. So is it missing the putt, although my technique is good, or is it making the putt, but I rotated my wrist more than I'm trying to? Do you get what I'm trying to, to get at here? You know, what you're getting at is is a, a, just a fantastic question because, you know, what are you trying to do? Well, I, I guess the, the ultimate answer is that you're trying to get the ball in the hole any way you can. And I think that oftentimes we are so focused on trying to repeat the same mechanics over and over and over again. And I think that, um, well, Bob Rotella in his book says, you know, golf's not a game of perfect. And I think that summarizes essentially the notion of trying to repeat a, uh, a swing over and over and over again the same way. And and I don't, you know, if you were to, to have the precise enough measurements to measure all the muscle mechanics and the, um, you know, looking at the nervous system and even look inside the brain to see what goes on during prior to and afterwards in making a, an action like a golf swing, I think you'll find that you never have any two swings that are identical ever. So why would you try and practice in such a way that you're trying to make something identical when in fact it probably never could be identical. All you could do is make something that I think has an approximation to to perfection or an average of perfection. And I think what we're trying to do with practice is trying to be able to get something that gets close to that notion of what's acceptable as possible without trying to repeat uh, the mythical perfect swing. You know, I, I often think about as an example, someone shooting a basketball. Now, my understanding is that the diameter of a basketball hoop is twice the size of the diameter of a basketball. And if you think about a basketball going in the exact center of that basket, you know that would be the perfect shot, or at least the perfect uh, ball flight entering the basket. If it's off a little bit to the left or right um, and still goes through, is that something you really want to try and correct in the future? Probably not, because maybe there's a, just a, enough variability in the human motor system that maybe those types of 
small random errors aren't really correctable. And if you take that back to the golf swing, maybe there's just enough randomness in the golf swing that trying to make an error is actually a bit of a uh, bit of folly because you really can't make something more correct than within a certain bandwidth. So I think you have to maybe think about setting up a, a degree of of what is relatively acceptable and try and repeat that rather than search for perfection, which may be uh, something that's elusive. That's a but great I, analogy right there. Oh, thank you. I love, I, that. I love that basketball one. I'm going to use that. Thanks, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, Cordy, your, your question about what is perfect, the, the, uh, the swing uh, or, or the outcome, I think is is something that is a great question, and I think maybe at least in the the uh, the literature that I've read about teaching uh, golf skills, I think maybe it's one that we've swung a little bit too far towards the um, the pendulum has swung a little bit too far towards trying to make the perfect swing rather than trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B as best as possible. So maybe it's it's about looking at that. That performance, I 100% agree, you know, on that challenge point discussion in, in trying to make our, our, challenge, our practice challenging enough, what's the, the breakdown do you think of, do we look for when that performance start to fail, as in like um, the ball doesn't go in the hole, or do we look when the technique breaks down, but we can still perform under it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, that's a good question, because, because I, I guess if you, you know, there's, a, there's an error in in assuming that um, if you're performing well, then you're learning. And if you're not performing well, then you're not learning. But, I, you know, you can also turn that around. And I think that if you're, if you're not performing well, sometimes maybe you're learning more uh, than if you are performing well. So, so there's a lot to be considered when you're looking at uh, the challenge that uh, a particular practice condition uh, represents. Uh, if it's something that uh, that leads to improved performance and the person is learning from that as well, then I think it's probably maybe the best of both worlds. You're increasing the challenge to the individual, but also giving them a sense of, of okay, yeah, I can figure this out. I can, I can rise to the challenge and I can accept that things are going to get more difficult and I'm going to have to work harder at trying to overcome those difficulties. So it's, it's a little bit of both, I would say. The uh, performance may suffer, but maybe what underlies the performance actually is improving. So you, I don't think you can always tell just on the surface what's beneficial and what's not beneficial. Tim, would that take us to um, sort of the feedback that's given to the student in a in a practical setting? Like, are we looking at feedback based on the the move? Let's say if it's uh, some mechanical technical thing that we're trying to improve, we could look at: is there an improvement in how you the student has moved, or are we looking for a change in the ball going in the hole or the ball going the right direction? Because sometimes, you know, you can make a, a better potentially a better move and see that the shot still still isn't quite there yet. So right. would that take us to the feedback? Yeah, well, the, the feedback is, a, is an interesting issue, I, I guess, because for me, and I think for people that study 
motor learning and particularly that look at the role of feedback. And let's define feedback in terms of feedback that a coach or instructor gives to the individual. So it's it's what the learning literature calls knowledge of results or knowledge of performance. Um, that kind of feedback, I think, in its best form, is the kind of feedback that allows a person to come to understand the information his body is or his is telling him or her. Uh, for example, if if I say, let's say that you've hit a shot that has gone astray. Let's say it's a slice, um, and and you're an, a coach that says, okay, this is what you did wrong, okay, and the in, and the uh, student goes, okay, all right, I understand that. Another way of doing that would be to say to the student, rather than saying, this is what you did wrong, you could say, okay, tell me what happened, okay, or tell me what you think you did wrong. And just by turning the question around, it asks the individual to try and solve the problem for themselves using the error that just occurred. So the individual now is presented with the, with the question what you did wrong, they're presented with the evidence that something went wrong, the ball went to the right, and hopefully, if they ask themselves the question soon enough, they might have some sense of what the swing felt like that produced that error. Either the, the swing itself was wrong, or the grip was wrong, or something about how the club hit got delivered to the ball was incorrect. And through that analysis, they can begin, I think, to become come to a better understanding of the dynamics involved in in the ball flight and what causes those. And it's all predicated on this notion of having made an error and by having the, the individual instructor saying, okay, ask yourself what happened there. And there's, I think, a situation where feedback now becomes useful because having the, or maybe not useful, but has its ultimate use because now the individual has tried to understand what went wrong. The coach has asked them to do this. And now the individual can say, okay, this is what I think went, went wrong. And now, now's an opportunity for the coach to step in and say, okay, here's maybe what you're thinking, where you're thinking is wrong. Okay, you thought that the ball went here that way because this happened and it felt like that happened. Here we have evidence that that's not exactly what happened. And now the individual coach can present evidence that either confirms or disconfirms what the learner thought was going on, but after the problem-solving process has already been com com concluded or completed. And I think in that situation, the combination of the error being made and the attempt at problem-solving why the error was wrong or was made now, combined with that feedback that came later, I think pr presents a much more uh, a dynamic or rich problem-solving situation from which the learner has a chance to improve. For sure. I, not to put you on the spot, Tim, but um, I am going to. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Any research uh, that you can think of off the top of your head, uh, like kind of showing the importance of errors in, in learning? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that. Yeah. Actually, um, the group that I had at McMaster University, where I worked before I retired a couple of years ago, we uh, put together a, a 
quite a large, over a couple of years, we did uh, six experiments, five of which we put together in a paper that we published just last year in the journal Motor Behavior, which we looked at the role of errors in learning. And it was really kind of fun to do because some of the experiments took us in one direction and some of the experiments took us in another direction. And what we came away from it was that that we we came up with this idea, and it wasn't an original idea. It's kind of you know, after some of the work that Bob Bjork has done. And we came up with the idea that there are desirable errors and undesirable errors. And this is all related to the, the conditions of practice that we had in our experiment, which was a, a computerized aiming task is what it was. It wasn't a golf task at all. Um, but what was really cool, what we thought was really cool about the experiment is that there were, if there were decision errors that the individual made, that is, errors in practice that resulted from bad decisions or incorrect decisions from which they could use the feedback and make corrections to those decisions, then that led to really good permanent fixes in the learning process. That was a good process for learning. If there were factors in the experiment that were not really repeatable in that the factors led to random type of errors from which the person really couldn't discern what went wrong or, or why they were making the mistake, then those actually uh, detracted or degraded from the learning process. Uh, so it, it led us to this conclusion that, that maybe there are, that not all errors are good, but some are more desirable than other ones. And it seemed to us, at least within the constraints of the study, that, that the errors that were repeatable could be used to uh, problem solve in the future, good for learning, and the ones that were random and non-repeatable were actually not good for learning. So that was kind of a fun study to do uh, and publish. And I guess the other, you know, if you're looking at the motor learning literature on the role of errors, I would look at the at the vast literature on physically restricted guidance devices. And there you get quite... Uh, quite consistent results that uh, physically restricting errors that are made in movement is not a good way to go. It is for practice, but if you're looking at performing with without the physically restricted device later in retention or transfer, then it's not a good process at all. So we've gone from starting out maybe believing this myth of perfect practice makes perfect and that, oh no, my plane just went over the line that I drew on the camera on that swing. I better panic to now we are embracing the errors. We're going to embrace the mistakes because we know that when those are happening, that we're most likely in a more effective learning environment. Did I sum it up? <laughs> yes or no? Yeah. Very good. Awesome. Tim, this has been great. You've, you've changed some mindsets out there. It's got to feel good. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's fun to see people uh, starting to think, think twice about um, about how they practice. And I see it more and more all the time, and that's uh, encouraging. And I, I hope that uh, people like you are, are helping to get there. I, I appreciate people like you are helping get the message out that, that practice is, is a little bit more than just beating balls. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share, Tim. Uh, we know that you don't have to do this, and you do. And, and so we really appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot, Tim. Appreciate okay. your time. You bet. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Cordy. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Golf Science Lab podcast. Make sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this so you can catch up on our weekly shows. We will be back next week with a new show. And if you want to get all the details, the latest updates and insights, including our newsletter called The Dispatch, head over to golfsciencelab.com slash insider and become a Golf Science Lab insider. That's totally free. You get some different content, some stuff that doesn't go anywhere else. Go sign up and we will see you all next week.